32 counties, 32 questions. My name is usually Una, and my name is Andrea, and this is United Ireland. As you can hear, uh, we're a voice down this week, Una is away. But however, I will continue on with our mantra of every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world that brings us. This week's county is Sligo. And this week's question is, can improved access to art make a better society? Uh, So first off, we're going to dive into the week that was. And what a bloody week it was. I'm not even going to even try and go into Brexit because it's just so bananas. Like, it's absolutely bananas. But even how bananas it is just before we came in to record, um, well, a little bit before, the Scottish court had just ruled that prorogation, that I can't pronounce, is illegal, and that the Prime Minister misled the Queen. So it's the first Prime Minister that's ever been found to lie to the Queen. Like, that in itself, it's just bananas. Um, he's lost his majority. He lost his call for an election. He's losing everything. Um, and even today, I thought it was quite in, not in funny. Like I keep going to say funny. It's absolutely in bits. But the union boss, Lem McCluskey, has said that Boris Johnson um, should stay away from Scotland because if he goes up there, he'll be put under citizen's arrest. This is the shit that's going down. It, it's like an episode of... Dynasty, and you all know how much I absolutely adore Dynasty. But this is just bananas, and I just can't help feeling all this. And it's also the day that uh, the Brexit Party have a wrap um, around the Daily Telegraph announcing Farage as the Brexit Icarus. It's been a great week for uh, <laughs> classical moments, um, but I that in itself. Uh, the Icarus journey didn't go too well, if we can remember the him flying to the sun and his wings falling off. So I don't know what that's meant to mean. But also, all of this is happening. And I just keep thinking, they're too, I don't think they're too clever, but all the people who are involved are clever and they know how to manipulate people and what they're doing. So I can't help but feeling that this is all part of the plan. Or is that me going into conspiracy theory land, going that they're doing all this banana shit on purpose to make then make Farage look like the normal one? It's just... I am just, it's just too shady for what is going on. (laughs) And speaking of shady, when Boris came over to um, our lovely country of Ireland, can we give snaps for Leo's speechwriter? I'm not even giving Leo snaps because it was, it's like, he's just not getting snaps. But his speechwriter, like whoever that was, I give you every snap that uh, Cher from Clueless could possibly have. They are the hero we all need right now. The shadiness was poetry in motion. And I just think it was one of the most beautiful moments I've ever seen in politics with that Athena reference. So uh, well done to them. Uh, Also in the recent week, the founder of a conversion therapy group came out as gay. Surprise, the fucking prize. Like, no wonder all these groups, they're always set up by people who are cloaking their own issues and trying to enforce it onto other people. So I feel like there's so much learning in that and uh, what an absolute dose. Speaking of doses, brings me nicely on. It's so upsetting not having Una here to bounce these things off, by the way, just as an FYI. But anyway, speaking of doses, she's not a dose. Uh, Trump fired his security advisor, John Bolton, who said... He actually offered to resign the night before, but then, and he was invited to a security briefing and then Trump fired him the next day. So like the childish shenanigans that are going on there are absolutely out of control, but like what's new? But apparently the firing comes after Bolton recommended maybe not having the Taliban to Camp David on the week of 9-11. Imagine that's what you were fired for. Like, is that not the most obvious thing that could possibly happen? 
anyway, he's toast and he was a dose anyway as well. Do you think dose might be the word of the week? Uh, next is, is something a little bit more closer to home. The dramas are continuing apace with the public service card. Uh, following the ruling from uh, Helen Dixon, who was a previous guest, um, the Data Protection Commissioner, um, that the card and the collection of data was illegal, Regina Doherty has refused to publish the contentious report and will appeal the decision that it is illegal. Um, and actually, it's been interesting to watch Twitter because there's advertising rolling for maternity benefit collection from welfare.ie. However, if you go to register for the card for your maternity benefit, you have to register for the public services card first. So there's, there doesn't seem to be any holding back from the department on the pushing through of this card. Um, so we'll watch this with interest. And finally, uh, this week, Sinead O'Connor did an amazing performance on The Late Late Show. And I think everything that that woman goes through and has gone through and where she's coming back from and everything I think she's an amazing woman and snaps for Sinead Now this week's county is Sligo so we're going to come straight in with some Sligo facts First up the population of Sligo is a gorge 65,535 Introduce yourself first. Andrew's uh, going to join in on the facts this sorry, week. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I'm Andrew, the producer. I'm just reading these for the first time. Uh, in <laughs> Irish, Sligoch means place of shells or Shelley place. Is that where you get lots of shells or people called Shelley, like Shelley Duval? I feel like it is both. Okay. <laughs> there's a lot of people <laughs> called Shelley. There's a lot of people called Shelley in Sligo. News just in. Our absolute icon, Countess Markovich, was born in Sligo in 1868. I have a very soft spot for her, um, especially uh, after we're going to be talking about art today. And Jill and Jill did a gorgeous Countess Markovich jumper for the Renaissance exhibition in the National Gallery. She was wearing Air Max. Oh, cool. I think you should do the next one because I've just read one of the lines and this, <laughs> this is definitely set up for you. So, Sligo's iconic landmark is a natural element, which says a lot about Sligo. Now, obviously, I didn't say that. I read that or I read that somewhere. <laughs> but somebody said this to me last <laughs> night when I was saying Sligo was on today. They're like, yeah, Ben Bulban is a real sexy ass mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and then I looked it up. And I, as I say every week, these facts are such an education for me and my surrounding learnings of Ireland. And it's absolutely a, it is a sexy ass mountain, I'll have you know. But what's interesting about uh, Ben Bulban, another thing, is that the cave of Dermid and Grania is underneath it. And I'm really into all the classical shit that's coming up this week. And I know this is not classical per se, but it's um, Irish folklore. Um, Ireland's doomed to be tragic lovers a la Romeo and Juliet were Dermid and Grania. And after falling in love and eloping, the lovers were pursued by jilted fiancé Fionn McCool. I always thought he was cool, but like pursuing, that's not cool. No, that's a bit stalky. That's not, that's very Mac uncool. Okay. <laughs> Zing. Uh, he was a giant from the Giant's Causeway and you can go and see their um, cave where legend has it that they hid together nearby in the Glenef Horseshoe. That's good. I like the fact that Dermot and Gronje could still be a couple that go to Copperface Jacks as well. <laughs> They're still relevant. It's still there. <laughs> still Sligo. got it. <laughs> Sligo is a surf haven and it's nicknamed Ireland's Surf Coast. I've never been surfing. Have you not? It's no. really hard. I'd say so. If you have no upper body strength, you're fucked. Yeah, I have core issues. <laughs> <laughs> Same. But it is a very nice sport. 
once you get it like even if you want to just lie on the board I think if I was going to do it I'd go somewhere warmer yeah. than Sligo in the Atlantic I get the waves are good and you've got wetsuits and that but I like the idea of the you know the sun and rolling stuff. down your wetsuit halfway and just yeah. be like rolling your hair the other <laughs> th- I mean the, 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 the thing about that is where you have that kind of surfing you also tend to have sharks so it's a payoff. Yeah. But do you know what the only problem is? So I would be really good at surfing if you didn't have to get back up on the board when you fell off. Right. Because it's the getting up on the board that's the problem. Once you're up there, I'm like amazing at it. <laughs> <laughs> apart from that, apart from I, that. I could probably easy Britain, watch out. Apart from this one fundamental part of doing surfing, I'm very good <laughs> at surfing. Getting onto yeah. it. Um, Sligo was home to W.B. Yeats, who was the first Irish man to get a Nobel Peace Prize in 1923 for his poetry and I had another educational piece for myself I looked up all his poetry this morning and it's just kind of depressing how obsessed he was with old age and dying Mm. he didn't see it as the gift that it is to get old yeah withering away is not that much of a gift though yeah well you get some wisdom and shit but you have to choose not to wither alright that's my top tip for this week (laughs) okay thanks I'll do my best with that no withering it doesn't seem to be working at the moment Um, following the harrowing effects of the famine and a cholera outbreak in 1832 that left more people dead in Sligo than anywhere else uh, Bram Stoker the author of Dracula had his macabre imagination fired by his mother, a Sligo woman who told stories of coffin makers knocking on doors in the night, looking for corpses and of victims being buried alive. The Bram Stoker Festival was on the 25th to the 28th of October. Yeah, it's a fab festival. It's like Mm. four days of all this amazing shit going on. And he was Irish. Yeah. Like, go on, Dracula. I know. (laughs) Get your teeth into that. Dracula, he's a good guy. This week our county is Sligo and here is our Sligo County Rep. My name is Patrick Carl Curley. I'm a poet and host of Illuminations Poetry Open Mic on the first Thursday of every month in Bookmart, Bridge Street, Sligo. Illuminations began life as part of the Northwest Pride Festival some years ago and after the initial event, myself and Donald Adams and Adam Rook, staff of the Bookmart, sat down and basically said something to the tune of that went well, should we do another? And indeed, here we are some six years later, still showing up on the first Thursday of every month. The event is not exclusively a poetry night. Uh, It's open to fiction, to journalism, to music, to performance art, to esoterica. Um, Many people bring their own work. It can be the work of other people. And often the writers that arrive will use it as an opportunity to test material and see how it sounds once it's up off the page and has life breathed into it. Since the 2013 beginnings of it, uh, Illuminations has grown and expanded and has become a part of Carja Sligo Arts Festival and indeed a venue for the Vagabond Voices Performance Trail as part of that festival. Um, We've had special guests over the years, including Kevin Barry, Deirdre Sullivan, Alan McMonagall and Camille DeAngelis, as well as many others. Um, It continues to grow and expand, indeed, 
Bookmart has become something of a kind of cultural hub for the Sligo alternative scene. Uh, indeed, this month on the 25th, uh, Bell Lungs and Nature Walk will be performing there and Joy Gavin will be performing there in October. Um, as regards my own practice, I am currently working on developing a, a video installation piece based upon a poem called Morgue Parking at Night, uh, which I had published in The Cormorant in 2018 as part of Tread Softly Festival. This week's question, does more access to art result in a better society? It's quite a big scope of a question. But it's a week that brought us news of the closure of the Bernard Shaw in Dublin and it feels like culture's under attack. And when you delve into it a bit more, you realise it's not that it's under attack. It's just that it seems to have no one guarding it. Hotels and student accommodations are popping up a mile a minute. And whilst it's very easy to get angry with the hotel owners and developers, we have to keep remembering it's not their job to shape the country's cultural access and it's the fabric of our society. City and county councils are responsible for public amenities and this includes culture. But the added problem you have when it comes to cultural hubs like the Bernard Shaw is that the people in power, the people who've been voted into city and county councils, often don't consider this type of culture culture. It's very often nothing more than a nuisance. And we've seen that, especially with the Shaw. But as Irish people, we're lauded for our culture, like our poetry with the likes of our Seamus Heaney's and our great writers, like, ironically, at this very moment, George Bernard Shaw. River dance, sure, that's culture. But when artists who have the bonus of working in areas traditionally considered culture are having a tough time surviving, let alone thriving in our commercially obsessed society, what hope is there for artists pushing the boundaries, not just with their art, but those pushing the boundaries of what art is? And who actually gets to be the gatekeeper of where art and culture starts and ends? We've just covered, I suppose, um, the whole clubbing is culture conversation with our Carlo episode. And if you haven't listened to that, do listen in. But I think it feeds into this episode too. If we're going to convince councils to fight for culture, we have to redefine what art and culture is. And I was on Twitter the other day, surprise, surprise. And I saw this tweet from dictionary.com and it, was, and it said, just took a DNA test, turns out we're 100% that dictionary that recognises non-standard words are real English. And I think that is really interesting in terms of the Shaw because, um, or more appropriately, the people in the Shaw produced culture that was real culture. And you only have to look at the fights that are happening with people like Subset and their murals around the city. It's like we're fighting to turn everything grey uh, or grey with some gorge Instagrammable backlighting with a bit of glass as well. Um, but what we need to work on is getting this type of real culture thinking into the often snobby, dare I say it, and what can be perceived as highbrow world of art and culture to make those people in power realise that what we have is worth fighting for, that what we have is culture. Which brings me ever so elegantly into my first guest. Uh, this week is the final day of Renaissance, which is a project I co-curated on behalf of Tropical Popical with Sinead Rice, who's the edu- head of education at the National Gallery of Ireland. Um, when we were working on what this exhibition would look like, we had a million conversations about what we were trying to do with it. And the mainstream of thought was who gets to own culture and decide what art was and why lowbrow art, and I'm putting that in italics, uh, was any less art than highbrow art. Sinead is an absolute dynamo. She can talk for uh, the world. She is so inspirational and she, I 
couldn't have adored working with her anymore. So we're delighted to have her here to talk about uh, art, culture and access. Hi Sinead. Thanks Hi. for coming in to us today. Now, this week sees the closure of Renaissance and that's a project that we work together on yes. joyously. And one of my favourite quotes that came out of that project was someone exclaiming, Nails in the National Gallery? What next? Love Island in the National Museum? Which we're still waiting for FYI. Yeah. Sweat for it. Get on it. <laughs> um, but I was wondering if you could explain how that quote is related to your remit in the gallery as head of education. Okay, so my remit is essentially to look at the collection, see new ways for it to be used to inspire new practices, whatever they may be, whether it's fine art, whether it's performance, whether it's music or indeed nail art. But also it is to, I suppose, create further opportunity for people, and I mean all people, to connect with cultural institutions and public spaces. So for me, very much education, learning and engagement comes back to what's basically a human right and is a human right, which is access to culture and the belief that this can enrich you in ways beyond some of the other more, I suppose, uh, immediate human rights that we think about. So you, there's an inherent value to accessing art for you. Yeah, I absolutely In your job so. role, yeah, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that. I think when we look at education and we think about, um, say, the youngest groups that come into the gallery, we could have preschoolers or even like we work with babies, like literally ch- babies that aren't walking yet in sensory workshops. And there's so much research you can just literally you don't even need to go into big you know documents or anything on you can google it online if you look at scans that they do of brains of babies when they're exposed to sensor um, sensory material if they're given kind of um, stimuli all these little synapses start going off in their brain and they basically that sets them up for life that sets them up to be more inquiring to be more engaging to be more responsive to the world it's really detrimental to leave children without that but that continues then so like the idea of not encouraging I suppose questioning of not thinking about beyond our basic needs of thinking about what can feed the soul as opposed to just uh, what can feed us in terms of sustaining us that's a big part of arts and culture but also it's about thinking about the world in a broader sense I think so thinking about what is our duties what is our what is part of our kind of purpose as citizens and museums like the National Gallery are public civic spaces that's their very first purpose and you always say that it's everyone's collection it is because it's a national collection like it's held in trust for the people of Ireland so we all own it yeah Yeah. we do like so that and like that's always a really interesting point to jump off on when people come in Mm. it's um And people get really into it. They can have a sense of ownership. But like you know as well as I do, that the boundaries to access an art are not necessarily just the fact of it being in a city centre or of it being difficult to get to if you live in the country, whatever else. There are just preconceived notions and those can be just instilled in us when we're younger, that something is not for us. Uh, A lot of the time, obviously, it's to do with kind of um, class as well or it can be to do with our education very much. Gender is a huge factor, which I'm... I don't know, some people are not surprised by, but I was really surprised by it when the Arts Council conducted a report on um, education in Ireland and children growing up in Ireland. And it found that boys were far less likely to engage with culture than girls. But that was across every demographic, every socioeconomic factor that they could look at. So whether you were from a really affluent family or a very kind of poor family. That kind of brings us into a bigger 
conversation about, I suppose, masculinity and that is culture and art a f- more feminine trait, which is probably for an- another day. But it's kind of interesting that yeah. why that would be like that. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, there's exceptions to the rule, but I, that, the, the data was overwhelming and I was really taken aback by it. Some of my colleagues weren't, but it really struck me. And then if you look at museums or if you look at art spaces, um, a, like by and large, the staff would be uh, women. But then when obviously it comes into more managerial or senior roles or directorship roles, uh, it is men. But we're definitely seeing a trend in Ireland now with the national cultural institutions, which is great. And if you look at the breakdown of the artists in the galleries. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's all men. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like our collection is a historical collection. So you're talking about if you're moving from the 1400s right up, there wasn't women Mm -hmm. making art. It wasn't deemed appropriate. If they were doing it, they were doing it behind like closed doors or they were absolute blazers uh, like Sofa and East Banguasola and some of the people we'd have in the gallery that just absolutely blazed their own way in doing it and they were stellar so they couldn't be questioned on it. But even if you come into uh, say the Impressionists and people like Mary Cassatt she's a really well-known Impressionist artist. She was such a talent but and people talk about oh she you know it was phenomenal how she painted women and children and she had this really tender thing. It was also completely not allowed for her to work outside like the rest of the Impressionists were in terms of painting outdoors. She, it wasn't... A choice. She yeah, had to do that. It wasn't deemed appropriate for her to be outside doing that. So yeah. she worked interiors a lot. Um, like the gallery had a show a couple of years ago on um, Impressionist interiors and you see these women absolutely singing in terms of the work they created but it's also because they had to hone that craft and it was, you know, it was what was appropriate at the time. So I think we see without in, throughout history in particular... There's always women working away there, but they have to make it work for them. So they're usually kind of being, you know, they got to go under the in radar a little way. bit. Yeah. Which kind of brings us nicely into uh, Renaissance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> women working away. How did Renaissance come about? I think in terms of your remit and why it happened. So, well, if I think about uh, the first spark for me was when we had, I had curated that display after Vermeer with um, Mazer and Dragon Adrissic and Brian Faye, which was in response to the Vermeer exhibition that we had. And the project that kind of came out of that, which one of our team, Ashton Dunn, suggested, which was in terms of connecting in with you guys, because Vermeer is incredible and he's really well known, but he is academic. And these are small historical paintings and they're not going to connect with everybody. We're trying to find a broader way of doing it. And we had done the, fin- the really brilliant project with you guys and just the, I suppose, the commitment to excellence in that from your team as well and how they were, I think, anx- a little bit anxious and a bit nervous coming to the gallery for the first time as well and going into that exhibition and that really struck me. But how much they looked at the catalogue and the works and the level of detail they applied to what they were doing and how, I suppose, how much stock they put in doing this project really appealed to me and then you said one day you know I really want to do an exhibition in nail art and I remember jokingly going yeah we should <laughs> and I held you to yeah, exactly <laughs> that was the end but uh, for me so the with the Vermeer project for me that was like a remit 100% because we were also providing the expected but what we did with you guys, along with a couple of other projects, were the unexpected. And I remember that we catered for every audience as well. So we were re- like, we had um, stuff for, uh, we had a project called Vermeer to Maternity, which was like a baby workshop that we did, which was class. <laughs> Shout out to Janet McLean for coming up with that name. <laughs> but um, we had that right up to like a really major international kind of um, academic uh 
conference but uh, we involved music we involved everything and for me that programme kind of came full circle mm-hmm. and that for me is what we should be doing it also we had a really big outreach element in it we had started doing some online stuff in it as well and it was it was such a good feeling to be able to do that to, and to start connecting with people beyond who the usual audience would be in the gallery because they're already there yeah. I don't want to lose them I want to make sure that we continue to cater for them and make sure that they're having really valuable experiences too but I also want to talk to people that aren't coming and see why they're not so with that having built on that and then when um, you guys did uh, when Tropical Popical did the creative year long partnership for me that wouldn't have uh, for me it would have fallen flat if we hadn't culminated in an exhibition Mm. in a display that not only celebrated what had happened but showcased the unbelievable talent that had come out of it as well but also made very visible the process yeah. because that is something that's missing a lot of the time at museums and galleries it's the best part of art yeah I think the, the process is huge so being able to show hey this is the work that inspired these nets yeah. and this also went on this to inspire um, like an editorial fashion look or whatever it is but also now we have these new um, you know designers like Jill and Jill coming in and they're responding again and it keeps going one step further and then weaving in the education programme to it like that bit was crucial for me that we can have people on a tour which happen in the gallery every day these are standard things for us to do these tours but that we're talking about that work in a slightly different lens so you're still learning about Caravaggio or whatever it is but you're also coming down then and seeing how Caravaggio how a painting that is a historic painting that is universally um, known and celebrated could inspire something as contemporary and I suppose unusual as nail art like you know and making that really clear for people um, and I suppose at the start I was pretty annoying um, <laughs> at the <laughs> start for the whole time <laughs> um, to try to make this exhibition answer the age-old question what is art? Oh I am, I'm doing God. it what is art? but like I do think it has gone some of the way to making people maybe think about what we consider art and culture and that maybe the boundaries of what that is are much more mallable at the moment and like especially I suppose this week has been the week that we saw the announcement of the Bernard Shaw closing down mm-hmm. and there's been a lot of pushback against like what is is the Bernard Shaw this rundown pub a cultural hub yeah. so like do you think that exhibitions like that make people question what art is and what culture is and what it means to them well we know it did because in the responses we got and in the feedback we got not even just not even negative ones in positive ones where people talk, people spoke about the fact that they want to study nail art or they've always had an interest in fashion or or, um, makeup or whatever it is and they never thought of it being elevated to that status and the thing for me is I don't know why not but also the concerning thing for me with the show is so with it's it's probably because women's uh, interests and creations are always dismissed as frivolous like fashion oh that fashion thing and like loads of people said to me oh you're doing that nail thing aren't you oh yeah I heard it as well and it's frustrating when people haven't even gone into it because it's not just all the work that your team put in but all the work that my team put into it in terms of supporting it making it happen like the and also the curatorial support that I got for doing it and it, like there's a bigger gallery commitment to it and it is uh, I think it's unwise to dismiss it because I think what we absolutely need to be thinking about in times of crisis as well is the role of museums and cultural spaces and galleries and the fact that um, when we're in really turbulent times like we are now where we're in a very difficult situation in Dublin with the closure of these creative spaces with an absolute housing crisis I can't call it any other thing than a housing crisis I think it's shocking and I don't think it's acceptable but 
for me, they're completely intertwined. And then um, I'm really fortunate. I've just come off the back of a two day workshop on um, cultural rights and cultural democracy in the Celtic nations, which I attended in Wales, which was so galvanising and so inspirational. And it was looking at this thing of what is the role of museums and beyond housing, preserving and showcasing these objects? What things can these thing? What things can these works teach our children and their children and the next generation of who's going to make decisions. Can they teach empathy? Can they teach respect? Can they teach dignity? Can they teach love? Can they make us all the more aware of these really horrific things that have happened in history and why we should be so careful not to repeat them? Can they teach us about the fact that the bulk of the artists that would be in the collection actually probably died in poverty or didn't have any kind of financial success in their lifetime and it was what compelled them to keep going as opposed to something that sustained them? That, those are bigger things to talk about and actually they have a real place I think in terms of our conversations in our museums as well and the hope is that those words can kind of stimulate it the fear for me with something like the closure of the show is I see the show uh, I suppose even if we think about Mabos or any of the spaces that have closed down Block T I know Block T has moved but like those spaces are like the intermediary spaces I'm really fortunate that within my role at the gallery I have the capacity to do things which are maybe not as traditional in terms of a museum because it is about process and learning and engagement and so because of that we can ask bigger questions and have different types of projects but the fact is that museums have a particular remit and even the bigger galleries it's you know it's tough to get a show in a bigger gallery it's tough to get your point across in terms of what you've done if you study art in college so few people that study art in college continue on it's not that they didn't love it it's not that it didn't absolutely make them feel fulfilled and happy and that this was their purpose they just financially can't continue and places like the show and those other creative spaces joinery etc which have closed down they're like this intermediary space which tend to support like at a grassroots level cultural activity and creativity and they also are an amazing way of looking at that kind of like in the gallery you can look at a history of art like you can see the arc even somewhere like the Shaw so like she might kill me but like Holly Pereira one of her earliest um, typography pieces is in the Shaw and she was talking to me about it and she was like God I look at it now and it's like it's not it's so nowhere near as polished as she is because she's an incredible um, typographer now and sign writer and everything and illustrator but like how incredible that, that existed that there that you can see this person who is making artwork but now around Dublin you could see also the trajectory of her practice like see how she's evolved from someone who was just starting out to really owning what they do mm-hmm. and like if I think about the Twisted Pepper which is obviously body tonic as well in 2014 I curated an exhibition with Fizzcom students um, they were in their third year in DIT and we are talking about the fact that you need to grab it now don't wait till you've graduated to try and get your name out there or, or to try and get experience in terms of actually what is it to get your design practice out there and Body Tonic supported us 100% the Twisted Pepper gave them the space for free they were just thrilled to have this really interesting brand new artwork on the walls that was saying something really exciting about kind of 2014 and what was happening and that for me was just so special that these students got that support but the students also then got to support a place that they would go to and not even necessarily for drinks or anything like coffee that was open for and we sold posters and those posters were taken away by tourists and they brought them back to wherever they came from and that was a really unique piece of Irish art that went with them from someone who hadn't even graduated but how would you do that in the National Gallery? You can't, it's too big. How would you do that in IMA? You can't, it's too big or even some of the commercial galleries. You need those intermediary spaces. It's really dangerous to lose them I think. Not to end on a bad note, <laughs> I'm going to ask you what artists and creators you're most excited about right now so we go out on a high. I'm nervous if you're hearing this because I am 
slightly obsessed with her but uh, I've known Dragon and Jurassic for a period of time I've worked with her for a period of time and to me she is someone who's just she epitomises bravery to me in terms of what she does she's also a really fantastic educator and facilitator that she's not in any way kind of I suppose selfish about what she does she really takes what she learns and gives that to other people to try and encourage them to make their experiences into something that can either I suppose help them grow or reflect or be meaningful to them as well and she's very interested in I suppose the female gaze she's very interested yeah but she she has that cause but she's also she goes outside of it too she's not afraid Mm. to champion causes but her practice is stunning and it's just such a high quality and for me then I'm like that's like the holy trinity totally like she's she's just someone that I, I think is pretty phenomenal but honestly I could go into any of the commercial spaces up to the RHA like I mean obviously the RHA show is something like I just think it's an amazing because it's like yeah. a drop it's, it's all these so, little drops it's amazing I love that show. yeah because there's all these little sparks going around the place yeah. but even if I go up to like if I go up to Collins's barracks and you're looking at like the decorative arts up there or like little snuff bottles from like ancient China or you're looking at... Even, they're not like, making anything nation out, sorry. Yeah, it they're doesn't not making, matter. No. But they can be used to make something new. That's the interesting thing for yeah. me. Do you know what I mean? Caravaggio's dead too. <laughs> but we did okay. <laughs> him on Renee's <laughs> you got to use it. you got to bring it. And for museums, they should be thinking about that. How how can to these not just be... Yeah, to give them life again as well. Yeah. yeah. And who are they connecting in with? That's well, important. You go around all those galleries and teach them how to do it. <laughs> Nail art for everyone. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sinead. You're very welcome. As today our focus is on Sligo, we're now joined by Emer McGarry from The Model in Sligo. Emer McGarry is an interim director at The Model in Sligo which is an award-winning building um, home to one of the most notable public art collections in Ireland, which features one of the largest public holdings of work of Jack Butler Yeats in existence. It's also home to the Nylon Collection, which is a broad range of both traditional and contemporary works by artists, including Nora McGuinness, Dorothy Cross, Alice Marr, Claude Amo, Eamon O'Kane, Shane McSweeney, Estella Solomons and Paul Henry, amongst many others. It's hosted solo exhibitions by Paddy Smith and Andy Warhol, and has a vibrant music, film and educational programme. Emer, hello. Hello, Andrea. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for being with us today. No problem. I'm delighted. Um, just diving straight in, um, as an institution, I suppose, that's based outside the capital um, that provides really quite cutting edge contemporary art exhibitions, are there difficulties justifying the more cutting edge side of the work that you put on? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think it would be fair to say that it is a very delicate balancing act. You know, we have very diverse audiences here, some completely into very cutting edge contemporary art, others more into more traditional. We obviously house here Sligo's Municipal Art Collection, um, which you've just mentioned there in your intro. Um, So a lot of our audiences come to see that, a lot come to see art that's being made now. And I suppose it's a kind of particular interest of mine is finding ways that we can kind of coalesce those different elements and bring things together in a properly integrated program. So we kind of work hard here to devise, um, I guess, fully rounded projects that are more than just exhibitions. So to give you one example, last year I tackled, uh, I suppose, a huge subject, which was the refugee crisis. But I was very taken with the fact that Jack Butler Yeats had been um, really concerned about the refugee crisis after World War II. 
And I felt that, you know, as a kind of local homeboy to a lot of our audiences, it was kind of important for them to know that he was incredibly sympathetic towards people who were displaced after World War II, Mm. something he felt very strongly about. And I thought if we looked at those core paintings, we could really use them as a prism to look at the way contemporary artists are dealing with those same issues today. So while there are kind of challenges, I suppose we we kind of work hard and it's a core part of our curatorial ethos, if you like, to make the collection, to look at the the collection through contemporary eyes. Amazing. Um, and I suppose with that, your bal- with that balancing act that you have to do, how important is it then to make those exhibitions accept- accessible to a wider audience? And how do you go about that? Because I suppose there's, they feel like very different edges of the sword, I suppose. Hmm. Um, well, again, we're, you know, I suppose we're in a very particular local environment here in Sligo. Um, The model has been in existence for, well, 20 years in the form it's in, but longer even uh, in other in other kind of ways. So we have very deep roots in Sligo and we know our audiences really, really well. And we would feel very strongly that, you know, we shouldn't dumb down anything that we're doing. but that we will work really hard to mediate it to lots of different groups. So to give you an example, we have a very strong relationship with a lot of people who live in our direct provision centre here. And that came about because we invited an artist called Anna Spearman to to look at how could we kind of engage these diverse new communities that are a fact of life in towns all across Ireland today. So we figured at the time that in direct, the direct provision centre, there were no cooking facilities. And we here at the model uh, post-recession had a disused commercial kitchen. So we were able to match that kind of local need with the resource that wasn't being used. And that built a very strong, solid relationship with new communities and people who live in direct provision. And, and then once you know, once the door is open, it's it's much easier then to kind of make things more accessible and to explain what you're doing and to make people feel part of it. So we would have consulted some of those audiences around the Turbulence exhibition to see kind of what were their thoughts about it in the early stages of its development. So you're starting to get all these people in, I suppose, and with all this more access, do you think that you can uh, get a greater level of appreciation of the value of art and society? And then does that lead to a better society in general, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think art, you know, the arts really need to be part of the whole STEM thing that we hear being talked about. You know, I know there's a push to make it steam, but it's always an uphill struggle. And I think obviously art has amazing potential to make a massive contribution, you know, to society. I mean, you know, when when we really kind of think about it, absolutely everything that we use every day, every building, every car, Every tool started with somebody somewhere with a piece of paper and a pencil. So, you know, we can't really underestimate the value of arts. But I really do feel our politicians, our local politicians um, and our national politicians really have to get behind that and, you know, maybe open their own eyes to the value of themselves. We also run another great project, which is um, just to give you an example of the way we're trying to bring it into the educational sphere, um, where we take maybe 10 works from our collection and we pick 10 schools in Sligo and we show the works in a kind of carousel exhibition in each school throughout the academic year. So a school will have a painting at the end of a month, that painting moves on to the next school and is replaced by another. So over the course of the whole academic year, the children get to see and be exposed to the paintings kind of in this very slow seeing and kind of immersive 
um, environment, which is ultimately their own school and their own classroom. So somewhere they feel very comfortable. And we've seen a huge um, change in attitudes from a lot of local people based on the back of that project, where previously people would have felt, well, the model's not for me. Um, it's, you know, they, they don't come here for one reason or another. And now we see children who we've reached through the classroom bringing their their parents in by the hand, kind of saying, no, I want to see, you know, the, the collection actually belongs to the people of Sligo. And we want to see what's, we want to see more of it and we want to see it in its in its own home as well. Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, development going on around the country in cities, especially Dublin, Galway, and with gentrification and with the lack of value being placed on culture and creation in places of high development. Do you think that there's a plus side to that in that there might open up more opportunities for institutions around the country, more decentralisation, or am I just looking for the positive <laughs> in something here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, very sad what's happening in Dublin at the moment. You know, um, there probably is a little bit of a plus side for that in us, but we still prefer not to see, you know, that it wasn't happening because we really need a whole thriving arts ecosystem right across the whole country. Um, But in terms of the positives, we've seen a lot of really high caliber artists move out of Dublin. Leitrim is a great county council. It has a brilliant reputation for the way that it fosters art. So a lot of people do come after Dublin to come and live in Leitrim. And um, I know a couple of very high caliber artists and technicians, our own technician just left Dublin, uh, left the RHA and moved to Sligo. Um, so, you know, a lot of other arts professionals just being kind of squeezed out of the capital. And, you know, definitely it does bring new ideas and it does bring, you know, better kind of um, it, it injects a certain kind of energy into the the art world here, which is always really interesting and really uh, vital, I guess, to keep it to keep it going and keep all those ideas all going all the time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think we've talked about this in previous episodes where you have seen hubs and build up of uh, creative centres around the country, which I think obviously the rest, there is a life outside of Dublin. Surprise, mm-hmm. surprise. Um, the model's home to the Nyland Collection, um, which is a collection of works that was put together by Nora Nyland um, for to create an art collection for Sligo. I was reading about that. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and this puts... The, this puts the visual arts and the work of the artists at the centre of Sligo's social and cultural life. And do you think that there is someone who can put art back at the centre of Ireland's social and cultural life? Because it feels like at the moment, all that is at the centre of the life of Irish people is commercial success. And how do we get culture and art back into to the very centre? Yeah, I, I like it. it's a very tricky question. I don't think there's any one person um, that I could identify that could come in and, and do that. But I think in a myriad of ways, you know, we all can. And for the model, it's through projects like the one that I spoke about there, the carousel exhibition that happens in schools, because it's when you can really get children to try to be, you know, knowledge brokers in their own homes, I guess, and to try and sell the arts to their parents in that way. Um, that we can really see a difference. But I think as well, you know, when elections come round, people have to fight really hard, you know, to to encourage politicians to see how important the arts are. And I think, unfortunately, people have been, you know, so beaten down by austerity and art has been just devalued as um, a natural kind of knock-on effect of that, which is really sad to see. So I think we, you know, we we all have a role to play and hopefully we can play it. What is the most exciting thing coming out of Sligo art wise at the moment? 
Definitely the most exciting thing at the moment is an amazing exhibition we opened last weekend with a Glasgow-based artist called Torsten Lauschman. It has to be seen to be believed, but there are these amazing kind of performative sculptural installations that change um, a player piano, an old monkey who bangs a kind of maracas um, that all kind of spring to life as people wander around the installation. So I would encourage people to come in and see that because it really is mind blowing. Um, tomorrow we open, we start a new program called The Front Room, which is a vinyl listening, um, a vinyl kind of sharing and discussion kind of cafe. And it's being led tomorrow night by Mark Gary, really famous Irish artist. So I'd encourage people to come along to that. That's free and there's even a free welcome drink. Uh, Torsten's show is also free. We have an Art for Blind gig coming up this weekend, Art for Blind, your kind of local music promoters here. Um, so I'd encourage people to come to that. That's nine o'clock on Saturday night as well. So lots going on. There always is. Um, people can download our event guide on our website and, and have a look at everything that's on at the moment. Amazing. Thank you so much, Emer, for talking to us today. Really appreciate that. And best of luck with all the exhibitions. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Andrea. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Emer. Bye. Bye. Okay, so this was actually this is a new segment, and it was something that we spoke of um, when we were talking about what kind of podcast we were going to make. We didn't want it to be just um, two people having fights who disagreed with each other from the outset. We wanted to delve into issues a little bit more deeply, and then maybe offer solutions and things you can do. And it seems to have slipped through our fingers. However, where all good ideas resurface, I was having a beverage last night, and. Uh, during a discussion someone's like remember on Don't Stop Repealing you always ha- told us what we should do would you bring that back so here it is thanks Nathan for bringing it back we now have what you can do so in relation to um, our conversations today about access to art and making a better society and in terms of what's going on with the eradication of cultural spaces in the city and the country um, here's some of the things that we can think you should do first off and this is a really good one is go to museums go to galleries go to club nights go to fringe shows go to the cinema put your money where your mouth is if you're going to give out about all these cultural spaces being eradicated um, they need to be supported you need to get out there and pay into these places um, and show your support with uh, actually showing up Second is buy prints, buy art pieces, support local makers and take chances on new artists. So it doesn't always have to be um, the most well-known per se. Go to all the student events when they are graduating. Go to um, maybe start-up projects. Go to um, more, I suppose, what are those things called where you, there's a word for it, where people try things out. Go to them. Just take new chances experimental thank you Andrea Um, this is a key one don't expect art to be for free and I think this is one of the major challenges with this industry is that people they value the idea of it but they don't actually value the product so don't expect it to be for free if you get guest list to things maybe think about refusing it and buying tickets instead of you can paying for into clubs that pays people's wages that's paying for the security that's paying for the remodeling that's paying for the decor so just think about a little bit when you do get things for free that you're actually accepting that you don't think it's valuable enough to pay for follow give us the night Um, there is definitely going to be a campaign ramp up I think the catalyst of the Bernard Shaw this week has really encouraged people to want to get involved and to take control um, which is brilliant and give us the night have 
a very clear vision of what they want the night industry and economy to look like so do give them a follow I would guarantee that there will be more uh, dissenting voices and more uh, groups coming together to really make a change so keep an eye out for what's coming up Uh, Another thing to do is support the Greedy Pigs Kickstarter. They are a cultural space currently on Fade Street, but their space is being turned into a hotel. Um, Surprise, surprise. Um, So they are looking to get funding to open up a cultural space in Dublin 8 um, in amongst the student accommodation and hotels and whatnot down there. So if you want to see cultural spaces thrive, do support them. Think about who you should be held accountable for shaping the city. So it's very easy to get angry at um, hotel owners and of vulture funds and of um, people buying up space. But, you know, it's their prerogative to do that unless they're told they can't. So who is the people or organisations that should be shaping our cultural city and the fabric of our society? And think about who you think they should be. Um, I'm not going to tell you who to give out to, but just think about it. Second last, it's uh, not up to other people. Think about what you want to see in the city and how you can go about making that happen. Don't leave it to other people. If you want to make something happen, figure out what you can do to do that. Who can you connect with? Um, I always think working with other people is collaboration is so empowering and gets so much shit done and especially when there's so many people who have so much of a shared vision at the moment remember that the city is yours you like you own it as much as anybody else and finally support us on Patreon that's a nice intro into our Patreon now isn't it if you like what we're doing and value it let us know our Patreon is patreon.com forward slash United Ireland Get in the sea. This week's Get in the Sea. I'm not going to make it personal, but I'm just going to go for it. Non-experts making wild claims about the curability of diseases using foraged plants. Cop on. It's so, uh, I feel like, for cancer survivors or ca- people who are who are suffering with cancer at the time, it's so obnoxious to say that foraging for plants can cure it, can stop it, can heal it. Like, Absolutely not. And this comes on the same week as Gwyneth Paltrow tweeted about how she starts every morning with alkaline water due to its amazing benefits of alkaline water. Grant. But then she adds lemon. And anyone who's done chemistry will know that when you add lemon to alkaline water, it ain't alkaline anymore. So it's just so like... Not that I'm saying stay in your own lane. Obviously move around and see what's going on. But stop giving out fake advice as actual science is being deleted by the powers that be in America and like Trump is shutting down all these scientific institutions, stopping letting them talk on social media um, and silencing them and deleting scientific facts. Where we can control it, can we please start looking for QEDs when it comes to both wellness and sickness? So all you fake experts, get in the sea, which doesn't lead me on at all to my fave bits, but straight into my fave bits. Here they are. First up is... Hustlers. I haven't even seen it yet. I just know it's going to be amazing. Everyone went to see it the other night. I was absolutely fuming that I did not get an invite to the preview, given that all I talk about is my love for JLo movies. There was JLo, there's Lizzo, like cop on. Anyway, I'm over the worst of it. I just think it's like everything I've heard has been stunning. 
I just think it's going to be the best film that's ever existed. Maybe I'll mention it next week, but I, I probably will. I think it's going to be amazing. Uh, another thing that is my favourite is Fringe Fever has kicked in. It is the most exciting time. And I, I obviously I'm living in Dublin, so I'm talking about Dublin a lot. But the vibe and buzz of creatives taking over so many spaces in the city and fighting back. And it's such an impairing feeling to have this buzz of running from show to show. Um, and I went to my first one last night and then there was all the... Uh, the little after show drink and it's all the creatives coming out and chatting and sharing ideas and it just illustrates the power of festivals the power of art and the power of um, connection and I think it's just the best thing in the world shout out to Vicky Curtis for uh, Ga Mad I learned a lot about Ga and as I'm starting my journey into the becoming an actual Gwailgore I may turn out to be a sports ball fan after all as it may happen watch out hurling <laughs> Um the other fave bit for me is another Dublin thing. God, I really am obsessed with Dublin. <laughs> like all my education and I'm still back to Dublin. But I just wanted to say a shout out to Dublin Inquirer who are doing absolutely stellar work. It's a great publication. If you've any interest in what's going on in the development of Dublin, in the council issues, in the votes in the councils, tune in to Dublin Inquirer. They are an absolute great uh, publication. And like all the O'Devney stuff is happening, uh, O'Devney Gardens and the development there about the fights between private housing and public housing so definitely keep an eye on Dublin Inquirer it's a fountain of knowledge and fair play to the reporting that is going on there Um, I just want to say snap to them and then finally uh, the next No More Hotels event was just announced it is going to be on November the 16th tickets are on sale and if anyone who's at the last one knows what a hooli it was and the whole point of No More Hotels is to extend um, what amount of culture is involved in nightclubbing and I suppose with our legislation the way it is we're quite restricted in what we can do we go into a black box because you have one to three essentially with prinks so with No More Hotels we're trying to extend the uh, length of a night out from 8 o'clock with dinner and a show entertainment performances the cream of the cream of uh, talent that we have out there and really I suppose going away to redefining what culture is and clubbing is it so yeah no more hotels November 16th Uh, yay this podcast is produced by Andrew Magan at Castaway Media with support from Susie Bennett Crystal Clear gave us tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack Sarah Fox did all our design and you can find all links to our socials and our website unitedirelandpodcast.com and if you're enjoying listening do let us know send us DMs suggest us to other people send us some suggestions for subjects you'd like us to look out for in an episode drop us a mail or slide into our gorge DMs And finally, to lead us out this week, oh my Lord. When I say this is a tuna chicken roll, I can't even, I can't even put it into words how much of a tuna chicken roll this is. I've literally listened to it the last two weeks. It's been played at sessions. It's been played at festivals. It has not left my ears. It is one of the most, I'm going to say impairing, but impairing's lost all its meaning, hasn't it really? But it's an encouraging song of self-belief in a rave. It's called Work It. It's Mary Davidson, So Wax Remix. I bid you adieu. And if you do not start dancing the moment you hear this, there is something wrong with you. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was Sligo.
talking time from Monday to Friday, Friday to Sunday. I love it. I work. So when I say come on, I mean come on. You've got to work with me. Now, I don't want to see any fake ass workers. I need real builders. See you later. 